0: Welcome back to the commentary to Parashat Ki Tavo. I'm the author of the commentary, Aroban Lyman Hanavi. And we're on the middle of page 5. We are going to talk about the issue of trusting and obedience. We've already talked about um, the correction of God, the tohaha, the re- reproof of God, the the, um, um, the times when God has to give us a patch. As my uh, friend Mark McClellan would say, God has to correct us. And why does God correct us? Because he's a loving father. And God makes a covenant with all of us, and we're responsible for one another. And so just because I step out of line, um, I, and, and I receive my correction from God, and then the next day everything's hunky-dory, everything's going along fine, because I've received my correction, I look across the room and I see my brother stepping out of line. I don't, I don't just turn my face and turn my head away and say, oh well he 's going to get his too just like I got mine no what I need to do is I need to go over to my brother and say hey don't do that learn from my lesson okay learn from my, from from my correction don't step out of line just, you know do the right thing and so that's what we learned in Part B um, we learned in part a that that um, uh, that 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 we are all the the children of God we are all chosen by God we all have a a mandate just like Israel had a mandate and the reason we have this same mandate is because If you're a believer, you've named the name of Yeshua as your Messiah. And therefore, you've been grafted into Israel, and you were part of the covenant with Israel. We're all part of the chosen people. And so now let's turn to part C, and let's talk about this important issue of trust and obey. Because you know what? Trusting and obedience is what's going to keep us out of hot water. It's going to keep us from disobeying the ways of God. Okay, it 's going to keep us away from receiving the spankings of God and getting exiled out of the land like ancient Israel did. If we would learn to trust God and obey God, then we would learn to uh, walk in His ways and be a light to the nations like we're supposed to be. So this next section is entitled "Trust and obey and I recalled in the last part of of my commentary, Part B, the old familiar Baptist tune "Trust and obey you know it, Trust and obey for there's no other way la da da, da 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 um. What I want to do now for you is I already pre-recorded this um, sec- this next section in a previous commentary to my uh, Schumer Mitzvot series uh, called Trust and Obey, and so I just want to pick up the previous recording that I made there and bring it into this week's commentary uh, with this next section entitled Part 1, Trust, okay? So let's pick up the recording where I previously recorded it with the paragraph entitled, Some See a Contradiction Between Paul and James, etc., okay? I want to demonstrate a good biblical view of trust and obedience in my commentary here by examining two of the New Testaments better known yet, as I mentioned earlier, seemingly opposing authors, and who might they be? On the one hand, we have Rav Shaul, which is Apostle Paul, and on the other hand, we have Yaakov HaTzadik, or James the Just. Now, the former, Rav Shaul, wrote some 13 or possibly 14 letters to the believing communities of his day, of course, and the latter was the physical brother of our Lord Yeshua himself. Let's look at these two authors. As we study um, justification and sanctification, or trust and obedience, some people seem to see a contradiction between Paul and James on the teaching of justification. A contradiction. Now let's, let's outline it before we um, explain it or examine it. Paul emphatically taught in his letters that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, while James seems to argue that a man is justified by faith and works. And you can reference James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. In fact, let me turn in my Torah here to the passage that Paul uh, talks about. It's right there at the beginning of Romans. Uh, Let me find it here. Romans chapter 2. Uh, notice what Paul says here in let 's see right romans chapter three i 'm sorry, I said chapter two Romans chapter three verse twenty eight Therefore, we hold the view, this is Paul talking, therefore we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God, and of course we're assuming this is forensic righteousness, a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with, and David Stern's version, which I'm reading, has, which has nothing to do with legalistic observance of Torah commands. I think the standard version simply says, um, which has nothing to do with law. So, um, it seems to be that, that, Paul is arguing that righteousness, forensic righteousness, has nothing to do with works, whereas when I look at that quote from James in chapter 2 again, James seems to say that um, works, a man is considered righteous by the things that he does. So, how are we to resolve the seeming contradiction between these two New Testament authors? Well, I personally don't see a contradiction between the two authors. However, others in the past have. In fact, um... A more well-known author, and I, I have every respect for this author, or for this teacher, this preacher. Um, but at any rate, his history shows that he had uh, somewhat difficulty resolving the two positions, and his name was Luther. That's right, Martin Luther, as such an individual, an individual who saw the two prophets teaching, or the teachers teaching, to be in opposition. Luther insisted that Paul's view was correct. Luther belittled James' epistle, calling it "quote an epistle of straw." In fact, I believe at some point in time Luther may not have even um, completely agreed that James, the book of James, should occupy uh, canonical status. Such an approach to the two authors, however, in my opinion, is not necessary. Why? Because when the literary, the literary um, context of each other, um, yes, when the literary context of each other is examined or each author is examined, it can be demonstrated that there is no contradiction. In other words, a good hermeneutic principle for you and I to remember and remind ourselves is that when we come across two biblical verses or two passages that seem to contradict one another, we need to remind ourselves that God cannot contradict himself. God's word does not contradict itself in one place or uh, or another place. It must harmonize across the entire um, 66 books. And so if there's a contradiction then the error is on our part. The deficiency is ours. And we are the ones who need to um, simply work with the text or wrestle with the text until we can figure out what the contradiction is. Of course, relying on the Holy Spirit to um, provide us with the understanding. Okay, um, so let's look at these two authors. Uh, the key to understanding these two seemingly contradictory authors is to understand how each author uses the terms justified, faith, and, of course, works. So we're going to talk about uh, trusting and obeying um, from each author's perspective. Now, these words that I just mentioned, they must be defined by their respective contexts. Just remember this hermeneutic principle as well. Context is king. Observe the following table. Now, if you have my printed commentary on the top of page 3... Uh, you'll see a table there. On the left side, They have a table labeled Paul. And below that, there are three boxes. And in those three boxes, I took those three words, faith, works, and justified, and I gave them the contextual definition as Paul is using them, usually in his letters, specifically how Paul is using it in the Romans passage that I just read. And then to the very right of that, um, we have a table with, labeled James, and below we have three boxes as well. And in those three boxes, we have the same three words, faith, works and justified, and I show how James uses uh, the terms in his letter. So let's turn to Paul first. Under Paul's use of the word faith, I have it defined as genuine faith and reliance upon God for salvation. Under works for Paul, I have works are um, used as, or defined as works apart from faith that one believes are able to or help make him a genuine covenant member. And then under Um, justified, I have declared righteous by God because of your trust in his means of salvation. Now let's look at the table under James. Under the faith box, I have James defining faith as mental assent that could fail to affect one's actions. Under works, I have him defining works as works that can be done through faith which attest to genuine faith. And then under justified, I have James um, defining it as show to be righteous as evident by your actions. Now, um, if you'll notice, there is a difference between the way the two authors are using and wielding the three terms that I've chosen for um, my commentary here. I actually pulled the tables, or I should say the tables were um, put together not by myself, but rather they were put together by a man by the name of David Bernard in his book The New Birth, um, published by Hazelwood. I'm sorry, published in Hazelwood, Missouri, Word of Flame Press in 1984. Um, Page 48 and 49 is where you'll find uh, the table there. So, let's summarize what we have learned about these two authors at this point. Paul, as it seems, emphasized that we are saved by faith in Yeshua and not by our natural or achieved ethnic status. Now, I know that most Christians who study Paul believe that Paul is arguing against a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation, or or what we might define as self-effort or commonly termed legalism. But in reality, it's best when we understand Paul to really be arguing not so much against self-effort as he is arguing against self-identity. And it's because the Judaisms of the first century uh, found it necessary to place their faith not necessarily in God or in God's Messiah, but rather they placed their uh, confidence, as it were, in his, um, in, in the Jewish people, st- in, in their status. Jewish status was, in fact, uh, what they were, were placing their faith in In sorts. I'll talk about that a little bit more when I get to Paul and we summarize his letters using a series of bullet points. But for now, let me just summarize the two gentlemen. Um, James emphasized that the kind of faith that results in salvation will necessarily produce works that show evidence of that faith. And that's what we're gathering as we look down the list and capture uh, the essence of the three topics there, faith, works, and justified, as uh, contrasted between the two lists. So Paul was concerned about people adding anything to faith that they believe is meritorious for their salvation. Whereas, contrastingly, James was, or comparatively, James was concerned about people professing to have faith that is not really faith at all, but rather a lifeless mental assent to Messiah. Now, it seems that James was attacking the first century Jewish distortion of the Torah's teaching on justification, to use church lingo, wherein faith is some dead orthodoxy with no corresponding behavioral changes. Even Paul found it necessary to fight against this distortion of his teaching on justification in Romans 3, verse 8, as well as chapter 6, verse 1, and verse 15 of that same chapter. James, as it seems, pointed out that if a person has genuine salvific faith, works, will, and must follow after him, showing evidence of that faith, or vindicating his faith. Now, in James' example, Avraham really did believe in God. And James goes on to show that his works, that is to say, the akida, the binding of Isaac, or the sacrificing of Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22, is the evidence that showed that he had genuine faith. His works demonstrated his faith. If Avraham, in fact, had refused to offer Isaac upon the altar, then it would have demonstrated a lack of faith in God's promise to him. And that's exactly what James teaches in James chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. Okay, let's turn to Paul and get an overview of what Paul teaches in his letters, okay? More or less, if you're studying Paul under my commentaries, for instance, my exegeting Galatians study or my uh, commentary entitled uh, "What's Bothering Paul." This is kind of an over a comprehensive overview of of Paul, and I'm going to single out um, I think I'm going to single out the book of Galatians for this particular exercise. Using a series of bullet points to summarize his letter, we shall actually see that Rav Shaul had his hands quite full. When attempting to expound Hashem's way, that is to say the Torah true way, of making someone righteous to his first century Jewish detractors. Okay, you ready? Here we go. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bullets. First one. Let me quote uh, Galatians 3.16 to kind of get a running start. Quote, But knowing that a person is not justified from works of law, but through trust of Messiah Yeshua, even we unto Messiah Yeshua trusted in order that we might be justified from trust of Messiah and not from works of law, because from works of law not will be justified all flesh. Quote. Now if you're wondering, gosh, that sounded really funny. That's because I rendered it somewhat literally or woodenly from the Greek, leaving the syntax, uh, the word orders, in, in place as best as I can. And the reason I did that is because I want to um, examine uh, that verse and launch from that verse as our um, bullet points progress. Yeshua, Paul taught, has made forensic righteousness available to everyone by paying on everyone's behalf the penalty for sins which Hashem's justice demands, viz. death. Because we are sinners, the price for sin, or the wage for sin, as we know from another biblical verse, is death. The wages of sin is death. And so because all men sin, all men deserve to die bullet point number three forensic righteousness which is equated with salvation when I say forensic righteousness what I'm talking about there is justification or salvation forensic righteousness is appropriated by an individual for himself the moment he unreservedly puts his trust in God which at this point in history I might add entails also trusting in Yeshua the Messiah upon learning of him and and uh, <coughs> excuse me, understanding what Yeshua has done uh, for the individual. Bullet point number four. So, in order to interpret Sha'ul correctly, one needs to understand that the phrase Ergon namas, which is translated in our verse that I just read there as works of law, um, or in, in the KJV, I think it's translated as deeds of the law. Ergon namas does not mean deeds done in virtue of following the Torah the way Hashem intended. But instead, it means deeds done in consequence of of... Of um, perverting the Torah into a set of rules, which is presumed can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for Hashem or man, without being empowered by the Ruach Hakodesh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, Aragon um, Namas really is a works system, but it's not couched in the language of works. As I mean, if we really boil it down, it really is a set of things that a man does or a man um, presents to God other than accepting God's free gift of salvation as as, um, put forth by Yeshua. But the first century Judaism did not believe that it was um, a mechanical set of rules that they could walk into. Rather, to be sure, in the case of the Galatian congregation, the specific perversion that was taking place actually sought to transform Gentiles into Jews via a man-made ceremony of conversion performed under the guise of quote, covenant inclusion, end quote. So, on bullet point number, um, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six, in bullet point number six, we read, to appreciate the consternation that this um, policy, this halakha, uh, caused Rav Shaul, one has to understand that within the first century Judaism's, the prevailing view among the sages was that all Israel shared a place in the world to come. All Israel and Um, only Israel what's more since Israel and Israel alone were granted this gift from Hashem ostensibly of course then it was necessary in the minds of the proto-rabbis to actually convert Gentiles into Jews before they could enjoy the status of quote full-fledged covenant member end quote that last bullet there alone is the key to unlocking Paul's difficult uses of the phrase works of law and under the law I promise you and then the last bullet reads, because of this feature, the one I just talked about, uh, because of this feature, the entire sociological situation facing Paul, especially in Galatians uh, and in other letters, um, it was subsumed under the label, quote, circumcision, end quote. Circumcision becomes the um, uh, the social term to describe the halakha that I just described, the halakha that says that all Jews and only Jews i.e. all Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come and that if a Gentile wish to become a full-fledged covenant member he must change his status first i.e. he must convert to Judaism and become a Jew before he can receive any covenant membership from Hashem and so this whole social situation this works of law becomes a sort of shorthand uh, description for Paul uh, when he is talking about this phenomenon and describing Um, what was taking place or what the blindness was in the first century. So, we can understand that when Paul talks about that a man is justified by um, faith in Messiah only, uh, justified by, uh, not by his works, but by faith alone, we can understand that he is combating a unique kind of legalism, not a uh, your average garden variety of legalism which seeks to walk into a set of do's and don'ts with the anticipation of gaining some sort of status on the other end of the uh, of the do's and the don'ts. No, that's not the type of legalism that Paul was combating. Again, I'll say it one more time and then I'll leave off right now. Paul was combating a halakha, a policy, a... Um, a uh, um, a prevailing theology that believed albeit incorrectly that righteousness was granted on the status of Jewishness or Jewish ethnicity alone okay okay continuing our look into the life and times of the Apostle Paul we jump to the letter of Ephesians and there in Ephesus he seems to also be in opposition to Yaakov of course we're going to look at Yaakov's position in a moment in fact, a cursory reading of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, which is really a familiar passage, gives us the impression that only by faith alone are we considered righteous, and that external actions, assumed to be obedience to the law by most people, are of no apparent consequence to Hashem. The passage needs, however, to be understood in its entirety to include verse 10, and that usually is. Um, A mistake that we Bible students seem to make. We just don't read down far enough. The entire context affirms the biblical fact that our gracious gift of righteousness, that is to say, um, salvific righteousness, was indeed granted to us so that in union with Messiah Yeshua, we might live the life of good actions already prepared for us to do. Now, let's jump forward into my commentary and talk about obedience. We've now kind of established an argument based on the topic called faith. In fact, this first section, I could, tr- uh, it was in fact labeled part one, trust and Paul and James on justification. Now let's go on to part two, uh, labeled obedience. And let us examine what Yaakov has to say about faith and works. Let's start. Um, by first recognizing that the term sanctification and the term holiness are really near equivalents theologically. Both words in their various forms are translated from the same Hebrew root meaning to cut or to separate. And the Greek word hagiasmos meaning consecration. So the core concept of holiness then is this. It's separation and consecration to God. In fact, I'm borrowing my definition of the word consecration, straight out of the Torah, the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44. In our culture, um, sanctification, it seems, has come to mean the pursuit of moral perfection. right? Although the latter is included in the biblical concept of sanctification, it really is a corollary to the idea of separation. That is, sanctification results in morality, but sanctification is not tantamount to morality. Um, in fact, in the passage that I just um, referenced, Leviticus, God is said to be holy because he is separate from creation. That's really a Torah teaching. God is holy because he is separate, and he's morally pure in contradic- uh, contradistinction to sin. Um, so how does this relate to James? Well, a reading from James chapter two, verses eleven—I'm sorry, verses fourteen through twenty-six—appears um, as an overemphasis of actions as opposed to faith. In fact, that's where the um, confusion uh, was felt or the tension was felt in Luther's view. He saw that James seemed to overemphasize works as opposed to faith, whereas Paul seems to overemphasize faith in opposition to works. Well, in reality, a common understanding of the verses in James might give the reader the impression that works are more important than faith itself. Yet, Yaakov's audience, unlike Shaul's, if you remember, seemingly did not have a problem with an enforced conversion policy. We don't seem to get that perspective from James as we read his book. Um, Instead, James' audience seems to have a problem with a dead faith that led them nowhere. So, Yaakov masterfully constructs a correct biblical theology that showed that genuine biblical trust, always, capitalized, always, underlined, always, okay? Biblical trust, genuine biblical trust, always leads an individual into genuine biblical actions. Just mark that down, write it in the flyleaf of your Bible, memorize it, meditate on it, okay? This concept that I just mentioned there, that genuine biblical trust always leads an individual into genuine biblical actions, this is in complete harmony with what Sha'ul was teaching, not contradicting what Paul was teaching. Faith must not be substituted for good works, and good works should not be substituted for faith. They don't compete with one another. They don't, they don't compete. They don't um, seek to cancel one out. Um, Faith and works go hand in hand. Moreover, good works do not replace faith. Okay, faith. Let's just read it straight from my commentary because I'm trying to get ahead of myself. Let me start over. Faith must not be substituted for good works, and good works should not be substituted for faith. Moreover, good works do not replace faith, nor does faith cancel out the performance of good works. To be straightforward, because I know I'm confusing some of you, just remember this quote, all right? Quote, faith and good works go hand in hand. One without the other is incomplete and lacking of true biblical righteousness. End quote. Now, based on that, we therefore come to understand that for Paul, there was no bifurcation between faith and faithfulness. They are, in fact, faith and faithfulness, two sides of the same coin. One may therefore speak of each. I'm sorry, one may therefore speak of either with the full assurance that the other exists. And that's a quote straight out of Tim Hague's commentary, a study on Galatians, uh, available on his website at torresource.com. And that was put together in 2002. And I lifted that from page 98. Well, that concludes this uh, section on trust and obey with the uh, inserted audio that I had previously recorded. We'll go ahead and call this Part C at this point in time, and um, we're around the middle of page 8 if you have the written notes. Um, Very valuable lessons for us to understand, uh, especially as we look at the information that Paul provided for us and the information that James provided for us, and being able to reconcile these two uh, parts of the Apostolic Scriptures and not be confused, as so many people have done so in the past. The, um, uh, the correlation between trusting and obeying. When we return to part D, uh, to Parashat Ki Vo, we're going to start with the um, section entitled Conclusions, okay? Stay tuned.